Welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. Uh, I'm Adam Skelter, and today we have Jay Money Teo. How you doing, man? Good, man. Good, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, wrapping up the book. Uh, getting really excited. This intervention, the novel that uh, that we're going to be releasing pretty soon. Um, and I think it's either this episode or the next where we're going to be revealing the cover for it. So we're going to be sharing it here on the podcast, and I'm really excited. Um, it's uh, it's a psychological thriller. It's it's got a little bit of a sci-fi element, but mostly it's about um, some really really fucked up behavior in a girls' uh, reformatory school. So um, it's it's fun. It's going to be a fun uh, novel uh, and a, and a pretty awesome. quick read. It's about I actually wrote it intentionally pretty short. I wrote it about sixty thousand words, um, which a lot of the conventional wisdom says you know write a novel you need to have at least about eighty thousand words for it to be a you know a uh, worthwhile novel, even uh, young uh, young adult or YA novels tend to be around eighty thousand words, but um, but for this one, I was like I was like I recently read uh, A Clockwork Orange, which is one of the inspirations for the novel, and uh, that one, that clocked in at almost exactly sixty thousand words, and I'm also writing the novel so it adapts well to film. It's a very kind of cinematic. I have a kind of cinematic style uh, with my novel writing. It tends to be very visual as well as visceral. Uh, so it lends itself to camera. Yeah. So after reading uh, A Clockwork Orange, I was like, fuck it. You know, I was really I, after writing it, I felt really good about the structure of it. But it felt I was concerned that it would be seen as too short, which most publishers would say this is too short. You got to add some more chapters. And yet it's exactly this, the way the story needs to be told. Um, it's it's supposed to be a quick read. It's supposed to be something that you just kind of read and enjoy probably in just a couple days. Uh, another book that I love was uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I read that in an afternoon, couldn't put it down, and it's just this like kind of great, it, it reminds me a lot of like comic books and graphic novels where you just pick it up and read it for an afternoon and you just immerse yourself and you're done. You know, it's like a, it's almost like the literary version of like a TV show. What, what's uh, the, do you know the word count on The Road? I think actually The Road is under 60,000. I got to double check that real quick. So the road rings in at 58,700 words. So less than 60,000 words. Yeah. And it feels poetic. It feels dark. It feels meaty. It's heavy. It's well written. A lot of people, especially novelists, tend to make the mistake of, you know, they get this word diarrhea going on and they think that they just have to, uh, they just have to throw in all the adjectives, all the description. (laughs) When the truth of it is, and this is something I learned from screenwriting, is I really... Uh, the story benefits, the reader benefits from not necessarily filling it with, you know, just thick paragraphs that look like brick walls, but um, writing a very precise, very uh, thoughtful, uh, well-chosen words that immerse you in it. Um, and and even then, you know, like there's still subplots, there's still all the character complexity, you know, like the average screenplay is about, uh, it's a, it's usually about a hundred pages, uh, which registers at closer to about twenty thousand words, which is you know that's that's really sparse. <laughs> this is a little more immersive because it's a novel. You're art directing, you're creating character, you're you're using all literary tropes and literary devices, um, but it still has that uh, uh, you like it still has that kind of uh, cinematic feel to it when you when you read it. Um, but yeah, so that I'm really excited about. We're, I'm getting really close to finishing that up, and then uh, we're going to be doing. I'm actually going to be adapting it to an audio book pretty soon. So, oh, that's Beautiful. awesome. Yeah. Do you, do you have somebody reading for it already? 
Um, I'm auditioning readers right now. Uh, so what I do is uh, for the this this is actually my first audiobook. But what I'm going okay. to be doing is um, we'll be renting studio space and uh, hiring readers. So I give I'll, I'll you know I'll cast the readers based on uh, different websites that I check on, and then I'll I'll contact them and give them a chapter to read. And so they do kind of a, a sample chapter, and then based on that, um, I'll usually narrow it down to uh, probably about three give them some notes and ask them to do another read of just the first page based on my notes. And it's, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, like when we're auditioning, uh, actors for, for live action film, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, it's still voice acting. It's still character, even though they're reading the entire time. I don't want it to feel like it's being read. Right. Yeah. You want some personality in there. Yeah, exactly. Do you, do you do many audiobooks? Do you listen to audiobooks? Um, I have in college because I'm too lazy to read sometimes. So I got to throw in an audio book <laughs> to do it in between chores and my downtime. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't regularly listen to audiobooks. Okay. Yeah. I'm a big audio. I mean, I love, I love a book in my hand. I love to always have a book wherever I go so I can be reading. And I love audiobooks too. Like I'm no snob. I, there are definitely <laughs> books that lend themselves more to looking on the page and connecting directly with the words. Um, and, but you know, the, the storytelling tradition, uh, the books are like reading is a, is a kind of secondary adaptation. Like the, the story tradition really comes from verbal connection. So I think audiobooks, um, I don't know. I, I don't really agree with snobs that are, that are like, you know, <laughs> audiobooks aren't really reading. You're not immersing yourself in the story. I, I think it's all, it's all the story tradition. Um, it's just a different kind of interaction. Yeah, I definitely see that. Well, that's awesome. Man. I, I really cannot wait to uh, read that book. Thanks, man. Um, what about you? What are you working on? Um, same old, same old. I'm trying to get in shape. So I've been working out a lot outside of that, just trying to um, get into some auditions and, and get my acting going again. That's cool. So you're doing mu- uh, Muay Thai right now, right? I am. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. A few times a week at least. Cool. So I'm always sore now. Do you find that like training and stuff? Do you find that affects the way you approach your writing? Um, in a way, I, I guess I see it sometimes as almost like a meditation. So it does help me and mm. clearing my mind and being able to focus more in my day to day life. Mm. And that would definitely include writing. So I, I think there are some benef- benefits there, but I don't know how much it actually informs the way I write. Mm. Okay. Uh, do you have any like physical practices that you've gone through that has informed the way you write? Definitely. Well, I'm a big, I love hiking. I love walking. I love jogging. Um, after I fucked up my knee last year, uh, it's been really hard to get back to jogging. So I'm trying to kind of build up the, the kind of strength in my knee and my ankle again. Um, so I've been doing a lot of hiking, a lot of walking every time I'm working on a screenplay or a novel, I will usually spend a good 40% of the writing process, just walking around the neighborhood or walking, uh, going to an interesting, like, um, going to a lake or the beach or something and just kind of get in my zone. And uh, it's interesting because that is a part of writing, you know, there's that, um, there's that uh, kind of push that says uh, a lot of people say you got to write every single day. I don't write every day. 
I don't sit down at the computer and put words on the page every day. Yet, I'm constantly meditating, constantly brainstorming ideas, um, organizing ideas, trying to think of scenes and uh, reordering them. And basically, it's kind of like a mental chess in a way. And I'm constantly like in that kind of story mode. Um, but what about you? You don't do you write every day or how often do you write? I write at least a couple times a week, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I get writer's block a lot. So I often find myself not writing and, and trying to fulfill that part of my life in other ways with just consuming other types of media. So of course I'm always watching movies and TV shows and, and things that will hopefully help get my creativity going. So that way I can write, but I did want to ask you a question about when you're when you're walking around writing. I'm assuming you mean most of that is kind of like plotting out and going through things in your head. But do you ever use voice memos to kind of like mark down specific lines or? I'm not. I'm not much of a voice memo. I do annotate. I'll do. I write down notes. Okay. Um, most of the time, like when I'm, I'll I'll build a soundtrack for if I'm working on a screenplay or a pilot or a TV show or if I'm. Um, uh, if I'm writing a novel, especially, I'll build a, a series of playlists and I'll put that music on and try and just dream it. So I'll I'll put myself in the world and I go for a walk so I can just kind of get away from like, you know, the four walls of, of my office where I'm working and and just kind of immerse myself in the world. And that, that you know, kind of getting it, letting my body do the work so that my brain can kind of feel free, like it's making some sort of progress. Um, yeah, those yeah, moments are definitely important. Uh, yeah, so I don't I don't do voice notes, but I do like when something really hits me, it, it, I annotate it. Most of the time, if I if I find a, an answer to a question that I have, uh, like I can't forget it. Like I'm I'm obsessing it. Like I, basically, by the time I finish a novel, I've written it internally probably forty times all the way through. You know. But That's what about awesome. you? Do you do you do voice notes or? I never have. I I have some friends that are always, you know, doing like voice messages, like where they'll literally send their voice over text and not using their voice to text. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they'll send a voice memo in in place of a text and they're constantly like leaving themselves voice memos. But I don't like the sound of my voice, so it's hard for me to listen back to that anyways. Yeah, I I hate your voice, too. So I'm I'm kind of in that camp. (laughs) No, I, it took me so long, like even just doing like online videos for YouTube, like I actually wanted to pay an actor to take my, uh, take my writing, take my scripts and then put video over it and then do the editing. Cause I was like, I need a voice actor. Cause I'm, but then I realized like, if I'm going to be doing this on a regular basis, I have to learn how to do it. I just had to mm-hmm. slowly get over like how weird it is to hear my voice outside my, outside my mouth. You know, it takes a while to get comfortable for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's jump into the asshole. Look at the asshole. Okay, this week in the asshole, we got a question in the Art of Story group from Janice in Cleveland. She asked, "How do I deal with writer's block?" Uh, Jay, what what are your? You mentioned before that you actually uh, struggle quite a bit with writer's block. What's your process for for dealing with it? It's a process that I'm still exploring and figuring out. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people do struggle with writer's block. And for me, it's it's more just getting out of my own head. So like I was saying earlier, I, I try to fulfill that part in my day by 
you know, consuming other forms of media. So reading, watching movies, watching TV shows, all of that kind of helps inform my writing and get my creative juices flowing. So if mm-hmm. I'm really stuck, I'll try to watch specific things that maybe inspire the thing that I'm trying to write. Uh, outside of that, you know, trying to meditate on things. I do think like we were just talking about exercise and mm-hmm. like Muay Thai for me can be a form of meditation to help clear my head. Cause mm-hmm. I, I think often when I'm struggling with writer's block, it's more too many thoughts and, and not really being able to stick to one thing or, or figure out exactly the direction that I want to go in. And so I, just psych myself out and think that I don't really have the right answers. And so I think I just need a little bit of time away from that. And that's why I was saying I try to supplement it with other things. So real quick, let, let's define writer's block. Cause, um, cause I think it is, you, you kind of address that question of like, for you, writer's block is where you have too many solutions and you don't know which one to choose. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that can definitely be it. Uh, also, I mean, Sometimes I just go blank and I, I don't know where anything should be coming from. But also, I think that I, by having too many solutions and overthinking things, it just mm-hmm. completely blocks me off from being able to move forward at all. Yeah. Yeah, there's this one metaphor of, I thought about actually um, based on my brother who's brilliant. Um, he always just had this flurry of ideas. And uh, his dilemma always seemed to be trying to find the perfect snowflake in a snowstorm. And, you know, the solution always seemed obvious. Just grab one snowflake and that's the snowflake you stick with. But uh, but that's hard. You know, when you when you're really creative, when you've really like lubricated the the wheels of of ideas, it just the it just generates so many ideas and it's hard to feel like this is the right one for you. Um, It's part of the reason why I spend so much time talking about story structure and that kind of um, the the moral imperative, like it's it's something that a lot of people miss out on because because it does seem like you can just choose anything. Like like when you're coming up with a story, you can just be like, well, you know, a guy shows up with a bomb and blows everything up, ends it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> uh, like at the end, okay, major spoilers here. Have you read The Stand by Stephen King? No, no. I guess I shouldn't spoil it. Okay. I love The Stand. It's a great book. Uh, it, 75% of it is fascinating character writing, really interesting concepts. Uh, but the ending is a deus ex machina that is very frustrating. It's always bugged me. But a lot of the tension that the story runs on is running on how is it going to resolve itself. And the way it resolves itself has always been frustrating and disappointing to me. Because the rest of the book is so good. It's so enthralling. Um, But yeah, so the moral imperative, the point of the moral imperative is really uh, when you can tap into why the story is so meaningful. Um, It's 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 the dimension of the moral dimension of the world that you're actually trying to tackle. Uh, So because of that, once you have the moral dimension, you start to realize every conflict, every solution to any conflict in some way is informed by the moral imperative. So it starts to say that like a lot of the solutions that you're coming up with don't really address the moral imperative. If your story is about a guy, uh, a character who's learning to deal with the death of his mother and he hasn't uh, been able to emotionally engage it or mourn her 
and uh, in the middle of the conflict, um, he has to learn how to steal something from a 7-Eleven. And he figures out a way to steal something, and he's really clever, but this doesn't in any way inform him learning to be honest with himself or open himself emotionally. Then, you know, then, then you can start to use the moral imperative as kind of a gauge of the value of the way you resolve that, uh, resolve that conflict. And that's what I think, you know, really great writers do is they, they tap into that um, moral imperative, which is really just kind of a compass. It's a, it's a kind of uh, literary compass on which we determine how valuable the story is or what the meaning of the story is. Um, that's kind of a weird, <laughs> weird example. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. The moral imperative is one of the most complex things about uh, storytelling, but I think it, uh, once you can wrap your brain around it, it becomes a huge compass in determining the value of the story. Do you think that going back to form then is a good way to try to get something out of you? So like, going back to form. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, like going back to your basics, I, I would think that, you know, your outline and figuring out the moral imperative of, of your characters is kind of going back to the, the whole form of writing and, and to go back to those basics might help kind of, yeah, get yeah, back I into do. it. Yeah. Yeah. Once you, I mean, looking at the basics, you know, asking the question of like, what does the character want? Why do they want it now? What happens if they don't get it scene by scene? is definitely going to help you like identify like why uh why you want to prioritize it um mm -hmm. but again a lot of that it's almost like you need to write a lot and fail before you can really appreciate it like when it's really well done a lot of us read books and we just think like oh that's a clever story i could do that <laughs> without really appreciating like how much failure and how many mists you know uh, like how many times they've thrown the arrows or shot the arrows at the target and missed to really appreciate why it works and why, why it landed and on target or not. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. always missing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. You got some good, you got some really good stuff. You got some good execution. Thanks. You got a good story sense. Yeah. I appreciate that. For me, uh, um, See, I, I don't know if I struggle with writer's block as much personally uh, because I, I have like this huge reservoir of ideas and I'm constantly like working them and generating them. Um, it's pretty rare for me like to. It, it's rare for me to get stuck on a story. Sometimes I will get stuck and um Usually it's it's me trying to find the emotional value of a, of a conflict. I can sit there and just generate lists of solutions to story problems all day. Um, but a lot of it really is tapping into the ideas. Um, but but part of that is just comes from just constant story obsession. Um, so, yeah, yeah. What, what exactly do you attribute to having that huge reservoir? Like what have you done or any advice for people that are trying to build up their reservoir? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a deeply lonely childhood. No, okay. Just kidding. <laughs> Check. No, I mean actually, I mean I grew up. Oh, I grew up in a large <laughs> family. Like, I, I I totally recognize the fact that I'm very lucky to have been raised in the family I was. My parents were, you know, uh, my mom uh, is a journalist, 
Um, my father was uh, both an a engineer and a physicist as well as an artist. So, um, and, you know, the, the story and writing and reading books was a huge part of my family. It was all, it was a very much a book loving family. It, like advice, I think the hardest thing about it is just genuinely tapping into being passionate, like enjoying it. Um, I don't know. I think it's contagious. I think when you're around other people who love it as much as you do, then it like it gets you excited. So maybe that's, you know, part of the benefits of this podcast is like people sharing their passion for story becomes contagious. Um, but I do think it's like, you know, it's so satisfying. I, I think there's a big I did notice this actually with some of the I was, I was working with a writer recently, a, a client who was um, uh, I was kind of working as a consultant on his project. And he he was kind of struggling with this feeling of like not not loving the process itself. Uh, for him, writing was just this agonizing experience. Now, he wanted to be a director. Um, hmm. And he, he kind of looked at like screenwriting, like he had, he, he had sold some scripts, he had been hired to work on a TV show. And um, so he, uh, he loved the experience of writing, but I, or I, I should say he loved the results of writing, but he really struggled with feeling satisfied um, with writing itself. Like I, I heard, uh, did you ever see, uh, the kitchen it was about the, the, the mafioso wives in hell's kitchen in the seventies. No, but you, you brought it up several times now. So yeah. I, yeah. I, I want to know where you're going with this. The movie has a lot of problems. It's, the script's got a lot of problems, but I went to go see the, uh, this, uh, women in film screening where they interviewed, uh, the screenwriter and director. And she, she said something that kind of surprised me. She said, like, uh, who enjoys writing? Writing is miserable. Writing's horrible. Like, I've never had a good day of writing. And that just made my heart sink. Like, that was like, I, I do think in order, I won't say in order to be successful, you should love the process. But I think to be a great writer, I think you need to love the process. And part of the process is like really just genuinely loving. Like when I have, when I write a great paragraph or a great description or a great dialogue, I fucking love it. I'm on hot, like I'm on a high for the rest of the week. And it's, it's, and then when I go back and read it, I'm, it just lights me up. And if it doesn't, then it means it needs more work. To me, that's my ultimate gauge. If I read it and I'm just digging it every single time I read it, then I'm like, okay, this is working, which, you know, I have to be careful with that because I love my shit. So <laughs> I start to protect my darlings and then I start getting, you know, making the wrong moves, which is typical. It's a good reason why you want a good producer or a good editor to work with because they can rein you in. Like when you start loving all your shit, then you're like, the, then you start to see where you can improve and where you can develop. Um, but yeah, I do think the first core to overcoming writer's block is genuinely loving the process and really enjoying like the fruits of that. Like I know so many screenwriters or people who call themselves screenwriters or uh, who, or, or writers and authors who just look at writing as kind of like it's homework, like a chore. Hmm. And to me, those are people who have potential, but haven't quite found the pure love of writing. Like it's a very lonely process. It's you and the computer. And 
but it, to me, it never feels lonely or rarely feels lonely. There are times where I kind of look up and I've, you know, haven't left the apartment in days and I'm just writing and I'm like, wow, my life is empty and meaningless. <laughs> but, uh, but I think like when you, when you really just immersed yourself in writing, it's, it feels like you're like you're kind of I mean it's kind of like a god high like you're just like you feel connected to something magical and uh and if I don't feel that then it then it feels like work so I th I think if anything like you know if I could give advice find people that really let you up when you open up like Jack Kerouac does that for me uh Kurt Vonnegut does that for me Ernest Hemingway or if I read um uh, actually, Lisa Feldman Barrett, she's uh, she's a neurologist. She's not even a well, she's a writer, but she's not a novelist or a storyteller. But she the way she writes just has she um, she write she wrote how emotions are made. And it's one of my favorite books. I've read it, I think, like five times all the way through. And I'm obsessed with with uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's amazing. But I, I think uh, finding those artists that you connect with and light you up and get you want you like it's kind of like that pull back the slingshot and you just want to like get at the page you want to get at the at the keyboard and just start writing i think if if i were to give any advice like find the passion and and that's part of the process it's part of the discipline i, I think that's the case for any type of storytelling the best storytellers are the, the people that are really passionate about what they're telling yeah yeah i think that's true yeah because if they're not passionate like you know, if you don't care, why should I, you know? Right. Exactly. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So I think that wraps it up for the ask hole. That was a really good discussion. Um, let's jump into story bites. Story bites. So you want to get into story bites? God, that was corny. All right. Let's jump into story bites. Story bites. So you want to get into story bites? Today for the story bites, we're going to talk about uh, plot point three in the story diagram and in, in the prototype, uh, which is the impetus. Okay. Now we've talked about this in a few other episodes. Actually, we talk about this in every episode. The impetus um, is what is commonly referred to as the inciting incident or the catalyst or the point of attack. I use the term impetus because it means the beginning or the initiating uh, force that begins the process of, of anything. Um, and since this is story kinetics, we are interested in the study of movement, what motivates the movement, what causes and inspires the movement. Um, so the the impetus uh, is usually the culmination of sequence one. Uh, if if we look at the the four act structure, we've got eight sequences and each sequence usually has about three plot points in it. Sequence one starts with a hook. We introduce the character and the world they navigate. Uh, and then it culminates in that impetus. And, and the impetus is the presentation of the central problem. Uh, when we identify the dramatic question, which we've talked about in other episodes, the dramatic question is, will they or won't they solve this problem? The impetus is when the problem is presented to them. Now, uh, Joseph Campbell will often talk about uh, the hero rejecting the call. Um, so when, when, the, when the hero receives the call to adventure, that is the impetus. That is what is saying, like, you know, this is your opportunity to go experience a new conflict and go change the world or go change yourself and become the hero that you're capable of being. And they usually go through this process of rejecting the call. Um, 
it, it's different depending on the conflict and de- depending on the um, depending on what the story is. But um, but the impetus is always the presentation of the problem, and usually it's a problem that throws the character's world out of the status quo. So up to this point, when we introduce the character um, in a screenplay, usually in the first 10 to 15 minutes, um, we see the character in their normal status quo world, uh, solving the problems that they're usually solved, uh, they're used to solving, um, and we get a sense of their value system. We, we get a sense of what's important to them, what they care about, what's offensive or disturbing to them, um, and little by little, we start to uh, we we start to see what their normal everyday routine is. When the impetus comes in, it interrupts that routine and threatens to throw everything out of balance. Okay, so that means it's it's something that the character has to reckon with. Okay, so with the plot, the impetus is the presentation of what becomes the plot. So what I thought we would do is is look at some different movies. Um, hopefully these are we'll, we'll find some movies that you've uh, seen before uh, and I want to just go through and identify the impetus in each movie okay okay cool all right Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger I still have not seen Total Recall what yeah. oh so good such a classic okay for those of you at home it's that moment when they try and implant the memories and they realize that his memory's been washed and he's been on Mars before, and they try and sweep him under the rug. They just get rid of him. Um, that's the moment where his world is thrown out of balance, and we realize that there's a bigger problem that he has to solve. All right. Uh, Avatar. As in James uh, Cameron. The movie? James Cameron Avatar, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, man. I don't like that movie. I hardly remember it. <laughs> it's just so Pocahontas picky. in space. Okay. If it's Pocahontas in space. Um, um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's when the dude, whatever his name is, Sully, is it Sully he, yeah. when he like first becomes an avatar? Um, it's not when he becomes the avatar and, and meets whatever her name is. I don't know. Anybody's it's name. yeah. It's when she, when he gets accepted into the Navi. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Because it becomes about him, uh, establishing a relationship with the Navi. So the central conflict is, can he become a diplomat for, the Earthlings to the Navi. Okay. Um, all right. Star Wars: A New Hope, the very first one. Um. Oh, what's the impetus in that? As, again, it's been a while since I've seen that. Uh, is it Luke being told that he he's a Jedi, or like meeting up with? Uh, oh man, everybody's gonna hate me for blanking <laughs> on this Star Wars knowledge. I promise I've seen that movie like five times too. <laughs> it's it's when he first starts training with Obi Wan. You're very close. I'm very close. It, I remember it's the presentation of the problem they're going to solve. Okay. I don't remember exactly what happens after that. Okay, so he goes to Obi Wan Kenobi because he's got this droid. Because mm-hmm. the the R two D two is saying you know we need to go find Obi Wan Kenobi, so he goes out to oh, Old right, Ben right. Kenobi and he goes, I wonder if he knows him. Um, <laughs> and he's uh, he's sticking a little uh, screwdriver or something inside R two D two and uh, ratchets something loose, and this laser image comes out, and we see a hologram. Oh, it's uh, Leia, right? Leia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So I remember says, now. Yeah, you are my only hope. You, I need you, Obi-Wan. You are my only hope. So basically it's when we find out there's a princess who's being held by the Empire. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the problem that they're going to solve is, are we going to rescue the princess, Princess Leia? Okay, so that's, that's the impetus. Um, okay, Jojo Rabbit. Uh, just just to check, make sure that you watched it. What do you think the impetus was for that movie? <laughs> you think I didn't do my homework, son? <laughs> um, yeah, it's the moment where he finds the uh, the Jewish refugee in his attic. Oh, right. Yeah, that's sense. what the whole story is all about. It's about him being stuck at home and he discovers this Jewish girl in the attic. Okay, that does make sense. Yeah, um, Die Hard. Die Hard. It's, uh, it's it's when he realizes the terrorists have taken over the building. It's been so long. That's right. Yeah, it's when the terrorists show yeah. up and end the party. They say Christmas yeah, yeah. party's over, and they take over everything. So we know that it's a story about him. He's he's you know behind closed doors, and the terrorists come in and take over everything. Yeah, that's that's the problem that he's going to solve throughout the entire story. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, back to the future. <laughs> when? Oh man, you're saying all these movies that I haven't seen since I was like five years old. <laughs> <laughs> like I, these I've are never the great felt ones. the need. Yeah, no, I know, but I've never felt the need to go back and rewatch Back to the Future. But I'm guessing really? it's it's uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It, I know it's, it's a classic. It better. People love it. It's. St- I mean, it was made in 1985, and it is mm-hmm. still so funny, so clever, so fun. It's it's brilliant. It's it, it ages really well. I definitely have to go back and rewatch it, but yeah, I haven't seen it since I was like five, maybe ten years old. Okay, so we know that the dramatic question is: Will he get back to his own time? Right. So he wants to return to 1985 because he went back to 1965. So, Wait, so it's just when he first. 55. Sorry, he went back to 1955. So is it when he first goes back in time? Is that the exactly. impetus for that? Okay. Exactly. The impetus is when his world is thrown out of balance by going back to 1955. Exactly. Cool. And then there's actually other complications that happen along the way. Um, that that raised the stakes, but the plot of the story is getting back to his own time intact. Okay, um, that actually has a really unconventional structure because right off the bat he goes back to 1955. His world is thrown out of balance. He's kind of meandering, trying to figure out where he is, if this is actually time travel, um, and then he starts to look for Doc, and then in the process he gets in the way of his father. Who's peep, who's you know um, doing the peeping tom thing with his with his you know, future mother, and uh, so he accidentally replaces it. He gets in the way of the meet cute of his mom and dad, which mm, right. So that becomes a kind of second impetus. It's one of those. Uh, it's a really unusual structure, but it works so well. It's really well. It's interesting because it takes forever. That first act is really long, and then once they start setting up all the pins, it just becomes like. You know, neck break speed. It's so entertaining. Every scene has a couple double beats, but we'll we'll talk about that one. We should do that as an episode. It's it's a really good movie. Yeah, it'd give um, me more reason to go back to it. Too. Yeah, it's such a good watch, man. All right, uh, Toy Story. Toy Story. Yeah. Uh, man, again, I haven't seen the first Toy Story, 
So, you haven't seen the first little, Toy Story? No, 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 no. I have. I have. I haven't seen it since I was a little kid, though. Oh, okay. So I, I forget exactly how it starts. Uh, is, is it when Buzz arrives? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Why is that? Why is it when Buzz arrives? Uh, I don't remember. He's acting crazy. Doesn't <laughs> he like jump out a window or something? Well, uh, so Andy, he, Andy, uh, well, Woody thinks Andy's uh, new Replacing favorite toy him? is Buzz. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Right. So uh, all the conflict is around Woody feeling jealous of Buzz. So that's that's what he needs to to resolve. Uh, cool. Man, all people right. are really going to hate me for sleeping on all these classic movies. <laughs> uh, all right, you're going to love this one. Alien. <laughs> Alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, it's been a while. The original Alien, singular. Yeah. I do love that movie. Yeah. I just haven't seen it in a long time. Is it when the first person gets pregnant with the alien? Not when they're pregnant. Is it, how early is the the chestburster scene? It's it's about fifteen twenty minutes in. Oh, so is yeah. it? Well, that's the chestburster scene. The chest, absolutely. So it's not when he's when he's pregnant. It's when he bursts out of the chest. Okay. Because at first you think, okay, he had this creepy thing happen and stuck to his face, and then they get him back into the med unit and get the, the thing off his face, but then they think, okay, problem solved, no big deal. But it's, it's, uh, it's when he bursts out of the chest that they're like, oh, fuck, this thing is coming for us. You know, we should revisit that because it might be when he's pregnant, when the, when the, when the face hugger attaches to yeah, his face. Yeah, I don't remember all the details. That's why I was, I was struggling. I, I even thought the chest burster scene was a little bit later on. You know what? I could be wrong. It could be. It might be the the impregnation scene, like where where the face hugger attaches to John Hurt's face. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll, we'll go back to that one yeah. one day. All right, Independence Day, the original, Jeff Goldblum, um, Will Smith. Barking up the wrong tree. I haven't seen that one for sure since I was like five years old. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's not just when the aliens arrive. But it's when the aliens start destroying shit, when they start blowing shit up, that we're like, "Oh fuck, these aliens are here for to this is going to be war." Mm-hmm. That's when we know that this is about an alien war. This isn't, you know, um, uh, this isn't V or some sort of occupation slow burn. Okay. Shout out to Jeff Goldblum, though. God, yes. Um. All right. What are What are some movies that you know? Name some movies. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Parasite? Did you see Parasite? Love Parasite. Okay. Love Parasite. Okay. Parasite's good. What is the impetus for Parasite? Uh, the impetus is when he finally gets a job at like being a tutor, right? Cool. Yeah. Why is that the impetus? Because that's when that's what starts everything else in the movie, getting his parents' jobs and his whole yeah. family, and like getting them into that house to begin with. Yeah, and part of that is get, he's getting a job under free, false pretenses. Right. It's it's the fact that they start conning the family that uh, that's the real meat of the story. Cool. Cool. Okay. Uh, so that's that's the impetus. That's plot point three. Um, every story, I would argue, every story needs an impetus. It's the presentation of the problem. I I would argue that 
we don't you don't have a story until you have some sort of conflict that the character is going to face um now that can be you know it can be very understated um conflicts that are largely about character exploration or they can be very practical uh problem solving you know this spy stole this macguffin and are they gonna get the macguffin back kind of thing um it's it, it, it's mainly concerned with plotting and the idea is that the impetus is the concept of the story, but it's also the pretext we use to dive into the psychology of the story of the character. Uh, so that's the impetus. All right. So that wraps it up for story bites. Story bites. Uh, let's jump into vivisection. You want a vivisection. What movie are we doing for the vivisection? We are doing Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express. Nice. Uh, why don't you give us a recap on that? Yeah, yeah. So Pineapple Express it was released in 2008. It was directed by David Gordon Green, written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, with story credits to Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg as well. Um, and, of course, it is starring Seth Rogen and James Franco. Um, budget is estimated somewhere between 25 to 27 million Hmm. and pineapple express is about dale played by seth rogan a process server he witnesses a murder and then his weed dealer saul played by james franco they get caught up in the middle of like a drug war pretty much cool so it's kind of rival gangs yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get him way over their head. Nice. Um, opening. What, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, opening weekend, it made twenty three million, and its all time box office is at one hundred two million. Hundred and two million. It is. Yeah. yeah it's, is it's that like domestic a, or international? I think that's total. Like for both. Wow, that's really good. It is. It was like a, a really, like, it was a surprise hit, I should say. Yeah. Um, critically, it's it's a stoner comedy, so it hasn't been that well received. On IMDb, it's at 6.9. Rotten Tomatoes is at 68%. Wow, uh, James Franco really? was nominated for his performance at the Golden Globes, but outside of that, they, they didn't win too much. Or, Seth Rogen wasn't nominated for, for his performance? No. No, maybe at the like Rogan some indie awards, vehicle. but so that so twenty five million, which is actually pretty expensive for a stoner comedy. Yeah, they originally I think wanted fifty million, and so th- this was pretty under the budget that they wanted. I mean, they have some sequences where they're like bashing up car after car after car. Yeah, and I'm like, that is that's so expensive. Like that that <laughs> that car chase scene. That's like right down the middle of like, it looks like um, Sherman Oaks or something. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. That, and they're just bashing up. They're just riding over the, yeah. It's And the whole last that, set, that, set piece. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The 40-minute action sequence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, um, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, interesting. So, I mean, it, it paid off, definitely. It definitely paid off for the risk and everything, which is great. Yeah, it did really well, um, and they was still it like were a not career changer for for any of the talent involved. Um, nothing too major because you know Seth Rogen had already 
done super bad by now, so he was already on his way up. Yeah. And, and that Franco kid. Yeah, and James Franco was already doing Spider-Man, and I, I think this was a big thing for him in his comedy career, though, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, had we, we hadn't really seen I mean, we, we got to acknowledge the fact that these are all, like, you know, Apatow's protégés. Um, that they, right. they all started off in Freaks and Geeks together. And then uh, I, I think they built a lot of their rapport and a lot of kind of their um, their brain trust with uh, with Apatow. And then, of course, went on to, like, become the epitome of, like, slacker comedy and, like, Hesher comedy, stoner stuff. Cool. Thanks for that recap. Uh, that was really good. All right. Let's, uh, let's do our deconstruction. Story structure. We'll start off with first of all by identifying the um, the major plot points, um, and again the plot is determined by characters, objectives, and how they solve their problems. Um, and the first thing we always look for uh, with our deconstruction uh, for structure is the dramatic question. Uh, now the dramatic question, sorry, the dramatic question is the spine for the entire plot of the story. Uh, it's determined by will the character achieve X? You can pretty much just plug in those aspects and we will find the I, the, the dramatic question. So, Jay, for mm-hmm. Pineapple Express, what is the dramatic question? I felt like ultimately the dramatic question is can Dale survive being hunted by a drug kingpin? Okay. that's That's pretty good. That works pretty good. Uh, I posed it like this. Will Dale, it's will. It's always a will or will they not? Because okay. it's, it's a yes or no. It's not can he because we have to prove it. Um, right. We're going to learn right. what the potential is. <clears throat> so will Dale escape the drug kingpin after witnessing a, witnessing a murder? Mm-hmm. So pretty much what you said. Good. Excellent. Uh, what point in the story is that dramatic question posed? That's at the impetus and that's about 20 minutes in. So, sorry, you said that was at the impetus. Yes. So the dramatic question is the impetus? It's, it's asked at the time of the impetus. Okay. The problem is presented. Or, yeah. Yes. Good. Okay, so this is a good opportunity to talk about the difference between the impetus and the dramatic question. So the impetus is where you present the problem that's going to be solved, right? The dramatic question is when they decide to take measures to solve the problem uh okay okay so that's that's part of what the so for example if frodo decides you know what i don't give a shit about this ring stuff i'm gonna stay here in the shire we don't have a story he rejects the call and then the rest of the movie is him uh reading books and farming right and eating two breakfasts exactly (laughs) second lunch so it's not until he leaves the shire that we that we know that he's actually going to be taking the steps to solve the problem. So that's then that usually ends act 1. Act 1 is when they leave to go solve the problem, when they start to take measures to solve the problem. Um so in the case of uh, and usually what happens is the problem is presented, they learn that there's a problem, and then there's usually kind of a negotiation of stakes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this is where they're like, you know, usually this is why the the hero refuses the call because the hero has to learn why it's important or the main character, I should say, protagonist has to learn why it's important. 
it, the character can be a hero, but it depends on like you know how you uh, how you decide like whether it's an it's an ideal character that we want to be aspirational toward, or if it's a character analysis where we're trying to just understand their moral values. Um, but at the core of it is uh, there's a negotiation usually that happens between the impetus and the dramatic question. Um, and this this film is actually pretty on point when it comes to its structure. It's pretty straightforward structure. Um, so what is the moment that he decides that he's going to solve the problem, that he's going to take measures, that this problem is real? I mean, he pretty immediately starts taking measures. Yeah. Yeah. But, so go ahead. I mean, as soon as he witnesses the murder, he peels out, smashes into a couple of cars, mm-hmm. and then he goes immediately to Saul's house to try to figure out if he can be tracked down. Yeah. Okay, good. So right off the bat, he witnesses a murder and he gets out of there, right? So And he goes straight back to Saul's house. Now, when he's at Saul's house, they start talking about, oh, fuck, I just saw a murder. You know, there's some convenience as to like him going back, you know, like the fact that Saul even knew who the guy was in the first place before he went to go serve him. It's a convenience. I'll take it because it's the premise of the whole movie of like generally I'll allow some coincidences when it comes to saying this. The premise of the movie is what if this fucked up weird coincidence happens, but everything else can't be a coincidence. And and I think the story works for that reason. You know, it's kind of like okay, this is this is the willing suspension of disbelief that you're going along with. The rest of the movie doesn't count on um, coincidences. But um, so he goes back to Saul's place, and his first thing is, "Oh shit, I just saw a murder. Am I safe here?" And then slowly, actually pretty quickly, he goes back and predicts that like, "Oh shit, I threw a roach out." Um, if they found the roach, then they're going to be able to identify me, which is a pretty big stretch. And then he's right. like, wait, you're the only one who has Pineapple Express in the entire city? Yeah. And I'm the only one who, who bought it or that you sold it to? Yeah. Oh, fuck. He's going to come after me. It's like, uh, you know, it's a paranoid state of mind, which actually kind of works for the characters. It's a big stretch. He just happens to be right. <laughs> so it's... I'll give it to him because that's the premise of the movie. But um, it, we don't have a story. We don't. We don't know that it's a story about him trying to get away from these killers. Until he's like, "Fuck, he's gonna find out who I am," because this is the strand. This is the these. These are all the links that are gonna connect him. Here's how all the dots connect. I got it. We gotta get out of here. Me and you both have to leave because you can identify me. That means we're both in trouble here. So it's not until they leave his apartment that we go into act two and then the killers show up, right? So the dramatic yeah. question is posed in that moment. Before that, he's get, he, sees a, he witnesses a murder, but he's like, okay, I saw a murder. Wow, that's fucked up. I, don't, I, hope, they don't, I hope there's no way for them to figure out if it's me or not. And mm-hmm. then in the, in the apartment is when he goes through the process of saying like, oh, shit, yes. Because of Pineapple Express, they're going to be able to figure out it was me. Um, although, if he wanted to be really smart, the best thing he could have done was murder James Franco's character right there. <laughs> Completely severs it. After that, he's safe. True. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Cool. Okay, so we have the dramatic question. We know where the where Act One ends and Act Two begins, um, and then we we can jump straight to the climax. The answer to the dramatic question is the the most heightened emotional payoff. Uh, so what is the what is the climax? Uh, it's when everybody dies except for Dale, Saul, and somehow Red. <laughs> I love that so much. I love that he's just like this random, stupid, like a doofus Rasputin who just he can't be killed. Uh, yeah, originally, he was supposed to die when he first got shot. Really? But T- yeah. Danny Bur- McBride is so fucking funny. Yeah, they loved him too much. So they, they literally just kept bringing him back to life because they really wanted him in the movie. Yeah, he was supposed to die when he first got shot. So that's interesting because I was looking at the plots like how. So my big question was at the low point, Seth Rogen discovers that uh, James Franco was abducted. And, or sorry, Dale discovers that Saul was abducted. And he decides, I'm going to go to Red's. We're going to ammo up and we're going to go to the hideout. And the only way he knew about the hideout was because of Red. So if he wasn't part of the plot, how would Seth Rogen find where Saul went? I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure they would have found they, they they would have figured out a way. But that it's such a great choice. I love Danny McBride in this. He's so fucking funny. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, uh, cool. So specifically, his problem is: is he going to escape the kingpin or the kingpin? And the answer is yes by jumping in the dumpster to escape the blast that kills Ted in the El Dorado hideout. Right. So that's at, at um, one hour, 40 minutes, almost on the nose. Um, cool. So that becomes the spine of the entire story. Will he escape the murder? Yes, he will. And then from there, we start to map out the, the emotional journey that they go through. Um, so then we go from there, from the dramatic question to the climax to the impetus. And once again, we already know what the, we identify the impetus. What, what is the impetus for us real quick? Um, that's when Dale witnesses the murder. Good. Exactly. And that's exactly at 21 minutes and 52 seconds. Um, he just sees this random murder. Now, here's my question. Why did Ted murder the um, the Korean drug guy? I don't think they ever fully explained it, but they, they've definitely had uh, a war brewing before the events of this movie. Yeah, there was tension. But the thing of it is, is, you know, like they knew that Ted killed him. So it's one of those things where it's just kind of like randomly he just witnesses a random gang killing. Right. And uh, and he just happens, you know, wrong place, wrong, wrong, wrong place, right time kind of thing, Um, which, again, that's the concession of the premise. So you got to if you're going to accept the movie, you have to accept the premise and the premise is built on a coincidence. Fine. I'll give you that. But the question becomes like, we never get a good justification because if you look back at Ted's moves, you're like, why are you killing him? Like he comes to your house, his family knows he's coming to your house and you shoot him through the head. And when the guy's running away, he runs for the window just so like we can get a clearer view. Yeah, it's cinematic. It, it's, it's cinematic. It just doesn't follow the logic. It's like, what did Ted... The whole time, like later in this in the story, Ted's talking to to Chung, and he says, "You know, he loses his temper and he says, all right, this is war, this is war.' And it's like, you declared war the second you killed his his son. 
Did they did they for sure know that it was Ted that killed their son? Uh, yes, because he specifically Chung specifically says your death will not be in vain, and then it cuts to a photograph of the guy that was uh, shot okay. in the head. Yeah, 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 you're right. So you're he right. knows he knows that it was Ted that did it. So it, it was a long time coming for that war. I guess so, but like you still you still need the responsibility of like why would Ted do that in that moment? Was it that he was just going to threaten him? <clears throat> anyway. <I> <laughs> So he witnesses I, I, a murder. Uh huh. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say the, the logic of this movie is is that it's paranoid stoners like going on a journey that just feeds into their paranoia. See, and I think that actually would have been cool if they actually did talk about the paranoia. Mm-hmm. But they only had like a couple jokes about them being paranoid and freaking out. But it wasn't. Anyway, we'll go. We'll go into that. Um. <laughs> All right, so from there we want to get to, from the impetus, we got the dramatic question, the impetus, the climax. We want to find the midpoint. Now, the midpoint is often where the character feels like they're about to achieve their goal. It's kind of a false climax. And then everything gets a lot more complex and completely flips around. Um, so what is the midpoint for Pineapple Express? Um, I was thinking that the midpoint was when they decide to sell weed to get out of town. Because mm. that's when things start shifting for them. They sell weed to some kids, and then that's like immediately after Dale gets arrested, and that ends up leading to them stealing a police car, yeah. and have being chased by the cop who is one of the murderers at the impetus. Yeah, Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez. Um, okay, so because it's about disillusionment, usually what happens is is the second act is all about them trying to solve the problem in the way that they know best. And then the midpoint hits, and then all of a sudden they realize everything is much more complex, so everything becomes very reactionary. This has a weird structure as far as timing, but it has a conventional kind of up and down um, emotional arc. Um, I would argue that the midpoint is actually when um, they go to see Red in his apartment, and Red says yeah you're my best friends i totally trust you everything's awesome you're totally going to solve your problem and then all of a sudden red goes for a call and then seth is like bullshit i call bullshit and then the most hilarious fight scene ever breaks out and they just destroy this set <laughs> <laughs> like like they destroy every room in the set <laughs> yeah the, the physical so... comedy in this movie is amazing and yeah. i think everyone got injured on that set too really yeah, James Franco got stitches on his forehead. That's why he was wearing that uh, bandana, or not the bandana, the sweatband. Wow. Seth Rogen, I think he broke a finger during that fight. Danny McBride uh, got hurt when he hit him with a bong. Oh, really? Yeah. That wasn't real glass, though, was it? I don't think so, but I think there was water in there, so it had more weight than oh, they geez. planned on. I mean, it was brutal. It was hilarious. It but, was. But it looked brutal. Actually, the most brutal moment, some a lot of it looked like stupid and painless. And then like when they slam the door open and Danny McBride's face goes through the sink and knocks the sink off the wall. That was like, fuck, that, one, that looked painful. Like that hurt my head. I had to rewind it a few times just to keep watching it. Um, yeah. So the, the, scene, the scene where they go see Red, I would say, is the midpoint. Because up to that point... 
They get out of town. They go off on their little wilderness adventure. They have their nice overnighter. And then they think, okay, we're going to go to Red's and we're going to solve this problem. We're going to find out if he knows anything and it'll make everything simple. If they don't know anything about Pineapple Express, it's all fine. So we'll just go into hiding for a little bit. Then we'll meet up with the one guy we trust. And then uh, and then once we meet with him, then we can just say, okay, no problem. He talked to Ted. They don't know anything about the killing or about the witness of the killing. Everything's fine. But once Red turn, when they find out, oh, fuck, Red lied to them and there are killers that are after them, then they have the confirmation for everything. Then they're fucked. After that, it's like just one frantic fuck up after another after another, which is actually from that point on, they have the fight with Red. They have uh, they try and sell drugs. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? They have the car up. chase, the breakup, and then uh, Saul gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So everything happens like like that. That second and third act actually is pretty short. Like it's only maybe about half an hour with all that. They build up for a long time. Um, dramatic uh, question happens right around 26 minutes. And they burn a lot of time on that. Uh, and then the midpoint happens right around 43 minutes where they meet with Red. So there's like a good like 20 minutes in there, which is about typical. Uh, and then, of course, the low point. What is the low point? Um, you said that the low point was when... Saul is finally kidnapped. They like take him in. Yeah, that's that's kind of the low point of the low point. But when they like um, the actual low point is when. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was gonna say when they break up. Yeah, and they have their fight. Yeah, why is that the low point? Uh, I mean, that's that's when we see Seth Rogen cry. Yeah, and and they go their separate ways and everything. It it definitely feels like the low point. Um, We we get some funny scenes in that. Where Seth Rogen calls Amber Heard crying. Yeah. Yeah. She says that <laughs> that she wants to marry him. <laughs> he's like, Oh no, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. I love that because he's so like, oh man, this is which we're gonna we're gonna get into that in just a little bit. But uh yeah, I love that. I would say the low point is when they split up and then the resol- or the culmination of the low point of that scene is when Saul gets kidnapped and Dale finds out that he's been kidnapped and he's like, Okay. I, I got to change. Um, I'm going to go save my buddy. Um, and then from there, we want to track the hook and the subplot. So what is the hook? What's the opening scene? It's, uh, what is it, like the 50s or something? And they're 30s. Testing. It's 37. Oh, it's the 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes so sense. This goes that makes way sense. back. Yeah. So it's, uh, so it's the 30s. Mm-hmm. And they're testing with Bill Hader yeah. to see the effects of marijuana. To see whether it should be legal or illegal. Yeah. Cool. So they start off with a spectacle. You don't introduce the characters until after that. Um, and the and the whole scene is about you know them testing marijuana and deciding it's illegal because it's anti-authoritarian. Cool. What about subplots? Well, what what kind of subplots do we get? Uh, I would say that the only real subplot in the movie is when, or sorry, Dale's relationship with his girlfriend. Okay. I would argue that that's not actually a subplot. Because, Why is that? Because it's central to him surviving. Um, him surviving is also um, helping his girlfriend survive. 
So, for example, if she gets murdered and stuff like that, then that's that's part of the plot. So him trying to solve okay. this problem, that's just one more. It's not. Um, I wouldn't say it's a subplot because it's integral to him surviving the king, the kingpin, and the and outrunning the murderers. So it's it's direct. Every, I would argue that there is no subplot. Every okay. single scene is them trying to solve how they're going to get away from Ted, how they're going to escape mm-hmm. Ted, or how they're going to get Ted to to leave him alone. Um, so yeah, I don't think this is a subplot, and I don't think you need it. You know, it's a story about you know people under frantic search circumstances that are very dangerous. Right. So. Um, cool. Okay, so that gives us kind of the overall structure, and then we can kind of fill in the scenes around those um, those uh, primary landmarks. Um, let's dive into character and theme. Now, with this, we always start off uh, looking at the conscious desire, the unconscious drive, the Achilles heel, moral imperative, and theme. Okay, so what is the conscious desire? Well, first of all, we should identify the protagonist. Who is the protagonist in this movie? Stale. Yeah. Why is it not Dale and Saul? Um, great question. I I would just say that is it a two hander? It kind it's of a is. Buddy movie. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. But I would say it's it's more Dale's story because yeah, why? He's the one like alone during the impetus, and he's kind of the one that ultimately launches everything. We start off with just him in the early part of the movie, too. Yeah. Up until right before the impetus. Okay. But cool. I, I don't know. What, what, what are you What are you thinking? I agree. I think it's it's Dale's movie. He's the protagonist. He's the primary mover of everything. He's the one that ex- witnesses the murder firsthand. Um, and he's the one that motivates every single scene. We care about Saul. We end up caring about Red. But... Mm-hmm. um. But the conflict is completely built around Dale. Dale is the driving agent. Okay. Um, so what is what is Dale's conscious desire for the arc of the, the entire story? Yeah, so that's him wanting to survive the uh, hitmen sent against him. Good. Exactly. So the conscious desire and the dramatic question are essentially the same thing. Um, and so it's, it's when they pursue an object of desire. And in this case, the object of desire is to survive the kingpin. Okay. So the unconscious drive, this one gets a little interesting because it's, uh, the unconscious drive is where we dive into the psychology of the character. This is when we're looking at like, what are the values and the motives that motivate the character to make the decisions they're going to make the entire time. And the truth is, is at first I thought it was actually pretty muddy with this character part of it was a lot of the improv um because mm-hmm. you know they were going for the funny more so than they were going for the true to the character kind of stuff right um, but but some of the things we can we can identify about his character is he's do you know how old he is uh i don't i don't know if they ever said it was slipped in at the very beginning where he's pretending to be a or he's ta- he's calling into radio shows and he's um, talking about uh, him being 25 years old and he's dating an 18-year-old uh, high school student. Yeah. So he's seven years older than his girlfriend. Um, he works as a process server. So he's the guy that uh, issues subpoenas or paper, legal paperwork um, to surprise people. He wants to be a radio show talk show or he wants to be a radio talk show host. 
He's dating an 18-year-old high school student. Um, and interestingly, he doesn't want to meet her parents. That plays into a lot of his values. Um, and basically, he's pretty happy. He wants to he's, – he's totally content where he is. His status quo is he's – He's okay with where things are in his life. You know, he gets he gets weed on a regular basis, likes to get stoned every day, and he's good at his job. He's actually very effective as a server, as a process server. Um, so his unconscious drive is, I, I honestly, I think this is what's what's great, but it's also very typical of the Apatow movies. It's, you know, they, they they kind of identify like the slacker stoner comedy which is one of the biggest themes of stoner comedy is this kind of failure to launch. Failure to launch is like basically the bread and butter for Apatow's movies. Almost all of his movies are all about men or boys who never really grew up and most of the conflicts they're facing are kind of failure to launch conflicts or that's most of their character arcs. Um, and it's slowly their story about like, hey, it, basically it's, it's a coming of age for people, you know, for 30 year olds. And then some. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a lot of his unconscious drive, I think, is strongly motivated, ironically, by a superiority complex. He's totally content with where he is. Um, and at the core, or his Achilles heel, now when we look at unconscious drive, unconscious drive are the values that drive their decisions. And the Achilles heel is the kind of weakness embedded in the unconscious drive or the lesson they're going to learn. Oh, so what would you say the Achilles heel is for Dale? Is it his girlfriend? I don't think it's just his girlfriend, but his girlfriend definitely helps highlight what what it is. Um, I think the 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 best illustration of it is his relationship with with uh, with Saul. Oh, okay. So, so then, yeah, I I think his Achilles heel is that he thinks he's above being close friends with his pot dealer. Okay. So he, he's like, you know, he literally, he's like a, he's a wake and baker. He's getting high through the first act. He's getting high every single time he's alone. Every time he, they show him either with a roach, but you know, he, he's like, he can't wait to get away from his dealer. He's like, all right, can I just get going? I, I got the pot. Can I just leave now? You know? And then Saul wants to be friends with him. And at the core of it is that moment when he's um, when they're out in the woods and he's like, well, how do you know you can trust him? How do you know you can trust Red? He goes, no, he's a good friend. He, he's Red's really he's really cool. He got me a hand job in, you know, in five minutes. And he's like, but yeah, but he's but he's a pot dealer. He's a drug dealer. And that's when he, uh -huh. you know, comes off the or uh, Franco slides off this car and he says, well, I'm a pot dealer. And that's that I think is at the core of. Um, Dale's inner conflict, his Achilles heel, which is that he has a superiority complex. Now, what's what's interesting about a superiority complex is where you you think you're better than everyone around you. You think you're better, or you or you specifically choose to surround yourself with people that you can feel superior to, and that's mm -hmm. almost always motivated by um, by your sense of inferiority. So, the superiority complex is really a defense mechanism designed to protect your inferiority complex. So, and the best way to, to illustrate that is they actually do a really good job of illustrating it is when he goes to the high school and uh, he sees his girlfriend at school and he sees this, you know, really attractive, fit, gorgeous 
high school uh, guy like flirting and playing with his girlfriend, and he just feels instantly like, oh, this guy's hot. Like, what's going on here? You know, and he's just immediately like. And then on top of that, you know, right off the bat, he's he's 25 years old and he's dating a high school student. And he's just like, it's fine. You know, a lot of people condemn it, but, you know, it's honestly, it works really great. And what we're seeing is, you know, he's built this whole, like, he doesn't want to meet her parents because his ultimately he thinks his parents are going to, it's going to shed light on his massive inferiority. And then him hanging out with like, um, with Saul, it's somebody that doesn't threaten him. That's why he can buy drugs from him and stuff. And, uh, but he, uh, but he still feels superior to him. So he's got a superiority complex. He thinks he's better than the people around him. Um, which, you know, once we've identified the Achilles heel, then the direct conflict of that is the moral imperative. Uh, and the moral imperative is the moral rule that is the source of the conflict that the that the main character has to face. Um, so, which this is the most abstract, but one of the most important parts of identifying the rules of the story and the rules of the world. So, in this in this world, in the weed world of illegal drugs of two thousand eight, illegal weed, um, what would you say that moral imperative is? What is the what is the concept that he keeps facing and keeps coming in conflict with? Uh... I'm not really sure on this one. It's interesting because honestly, I think it's a little muddy. At the core, they're going back to like an Apatow staple, something that we see in Superbad as well, and that's this whole idea of like um, the the man boy or the failure to launch, which is basically like you know you got to depend on your friends, and it's 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 about mm -hmm. like um, you know. One of the things that works so well in this is most action movies are all about tough guys trying to take on the, the, the gangs and the mafia and all these dangerous, you know, kind of neo-noir tropes. Um, but this is about man boys who are largely like emotionally uh, underdeveloped. And so they kind of, you know, the, the thing that matters to them is like, yeah, but we're still, you know, best friends, right? Teamwork. Teamwork is what really matters. They have like all these like Saturday morning cartoon slogans while they're like fighting crime and stuff. Um, so in the moral imperative, it's a little muddy because, again, it goes back to this kind of improv issue, which we're going to talk about in a, in a second. But it basically is like to I would say to survive the weed world, you have to depend on your friends, but not too much. So it's it's like he he learns that he needs to help Saul and like that helping Saul is actually what makes him a good person, I guess. And like helping Red, it makes him a good person, but also like trusting in them is also kind of what got them like fucked up and in the situation there are. So it's right. kind of, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit muddy because they were going for the comedy rather than going for the truth. So the comedy was usually, it was largely going through kind of like, isn't it funny that these guys are in this situation, that they're completely unable to solve this problem. Um, rather than trying to focus on the, the, the kind of caricature of the reality of it. Like, uh, like the big Lebowski is a good kind of comparison, you know, big Lebowski came out what, like 10 years before that about, yeah. Yeah. Like 96 or something, 95, um, which is also stoner comedy. 
about solving a problem with, well, more of a, a kidnapping. Um, but you, you can see how the, the source of the comedy in The Big Lebowski is, uh, is kind of this, this uh, commentary on characters and status and power dynamics. Whereas in Pineapple Express, the comedy is, isn't that funny and goofy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't bad. I mean, they're both, they're both hilarious, but for, for completely different reasons. For sure. So, so from that, the theme, uh, the moral proposition of the rules of the given sphere, what would you say the theme is, the central theme, based on the conscious eye or unconscious drive, Achilles' heel, and moral imperative? What's the, what's the takeaway lesson from this movie? Friendship is important. Friendship is important. <laughs> I might state it like this. Don't put your dicks in your buddy's mouth just because they fall asleep first. <laughs> I mean, you can't say it any better than that, can you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the more I think about that. But yes, I, I think that's a great lesson to have learned after watching Pineapple Express. Right. So I, I do think like the, the theme is a little bit muddy. This is a, it's probably why critics are like, eh, this, you know, I was actually having this discussion with a friend of mine where he's like, well, is it really cinema? You know, it's not really cinema. It's a movie, but it's not really like a film, you know? And I'm like, I, I think everything's a movie. Everything's art. You know, mm-hmm. pornography is art. It's just, it, it depends. Like we judge it based on its merits and the merits, honestly, I determine that the merits of the quality of art is how effective it is at immersing you in that world. If you believe in the world, you care about it, and uh, the, the stakes uh, powerfully affect your value system. And in that sense, you know, there's a lot of porn that's more effective than, than a lot of commercial movies because it's more immersive. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Whatever. <laughs> Fuck it. Um, uh, but yeah, I do think that Pineapple Express is really successful in its immersion. You think so? I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a hilarious movie that really sucks you into that world. Yeah. And and has you concerned for the, for the lives of these characters. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. We'll talk about that in a little bit in the plot hole. But I want to I talk about, like, first, since we kind of got a, we got a sense of the structure, we got a sense of the character and the theme which is a little bit muddy. Uh, we want to, I want to talk a little bit about what this movie is really about. Now, we do need to mention that weed is, not, is legal in California. It became legal in 2016. Um, and, but at the time of this movie, it was completely illegal, um, unless you had some sort of... Um, yeah, medically it was legal. This movie starts off with a scene from 1937 with Bill Hader, and it pretends to be a scientific study on the effects of weed. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious. Bill Hader is so fucking funny. Uh, he's just smoking out and they're just uh, and then it just it's him making fun of the general. And at the very end, he starts shitting on him. And then the general like loses his shit. And he's like, that's it. It's illegal. Now, anybody who knows anything about the history of weed. You know that that is not anywhere close to what the reality is. Like the real reason why weed was made illegal was because it became a pretext for uh, incarcerating minorities, specifically black minorities. So they would 
use uh, lots of propaganda to try and make weed. Uh, there were lots of stories in the news that was trying to convince people that weed made you like uh, horny and crazy. And they started blaming rapes and stuff like that on, on weed. And that became part of the campaign. So they used that as a pretext uh, to, to arrest minorities who had no money or resources to be able to fight their, um, to be able to fight the incarceration. So basically, weed and drug laws became a pretext to get, uh, to turn, uh, to make slavery legal again through incarceration. Um, which I don't know if that was back in 2008. I don't think I knew that much about it. It was, I, I probably learned more about like the history of drugs and drug laws uh, after 2008. Um, I was a little bit ignorant to a lot of that stuff. But what's interesting is, it, you know, Pineapple Express, the first time I saw it, I was like, I didn't really question it. So the thing I think about that is, it, you know, as much as it, you know, it, as much as Pineapple Express seems to be, be advocating for the legalization of pot, in a way, it also seems to be whitewashing the history of why pot's illegal. <laughs> so do you think... Like it, it pretends to say that the reason why pot's illegal is because uh, it appeals to the Hesher crowd, and basically because you know and the Hesher crowd is largely like anti-authoritarian. It's that whole like um, uh, what's it called Animal House ethic of like you know fuck the dean, fuck the man, fuck the police. Mm -hmm. um, but it completely washes over the fact that the real reason why drugs are illegal is because of an endemically racist system that uses drugs as a pretext to incarcerate uh, whole swaths of Americans. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with you that ultimately it is whitewashing that history, but I think it does it in such a, uh, an obviously comedy stakes sort of way an absurd way that to me it's not necessarily a negative mark on the movie that's so you feel like it's not really the movie's responsibility to do it yeah i don't think so i, I think it, it takes an absurdist stance i mean that whole scene is super absurd and not realistic in any other way i mean a, a dude comes in with a, a, an old-timey scuba diving suit in order to not get high off of bill Hader's fumes there's there's nothing realistic about that yeah scene. Not only that, like in the 30s, it was common for people to smoke cannabis. Mm -hmm. Like before it was made illegal, everyone smoked cannabis. It was just like a normal, like it was like tobacco. And it wasn't until they, they realized they could use this as a pretext to incarcerate. And, you know, and then you had the teetotalers and prohibition during that same period or actually a few years before that. Like, uh, you know. But in your mind, this movie doesn't have any responsibility to address the fact that the real reason why drugs were made illegal the way they were wasn't because of a health crisis, but because of racist uh, fear mongering. I don't think this movie specifically has a responsibility for that, especially in the way that it presented that information. But I think it's great that we're talking about it as we're uh, you know, reviewing and, and discussing a movie about weed in the U.S., so, so I think it's important for us to discuss it, but I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility of a movie like that. Okay, that's fair. That's a fair point. Do, do you think it is? I don't know. See, 
because it's comedy, I think comedy needs to explore whatever it wants. Right. You know, I, I think it needs to be offensive and profane and silly and absurd and all that shit. That, that's yeah. why comedy is so important is because it, 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 it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. If we can't laugh at anything, then we know that we're, under, we're in a tyranny. That's the best measure of whether we're in some sort of tyrannical system. If we can't just laugh at something and feel safe about laughing. So you don't think that Pineapple Express is Apatow's attempt to whitewash the whole history of drug uh, drug laws in America. I, I don't think so. I, I think it's just an absurdist comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I actually agree with you. And the reason why I agree with you is because, largely because of the writing and the inconsistency in the theme. Um, which, you know, let's, let's jump into the plot holes now. Or let's, yeah. let's jump into uh, Shut Your Plot Hole. Okay, so Shut Your Plot Hole is where we shift from analysis to try and understand what the movie is, what the structure is, and kind of move into more of a, a mindset of criticism in an attempt to learn from it what we can and uh, identify maybe where some of its weaknesses are to improve our own art. Um, so do you have any major plot holes that you identified? Honestly, no. Uh, there, I'm sure there's a ton in this movie. Like you're saying, there's a lot of improvised scenes. And so I know there's things that they did not plan out, but I, I didn't go into this movie trying to fully dissect it like that. Of course, I was trying to be conscious of a lot of the major plot points and and like act breaks in the movie. But having said that, I, I think that at the end of the day, this movie is like, it's just a comedy. It's, it's hilarious. And I, I didn't deconstruct it too, too much, at least not like, we do for the other movies that we've gone over, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your plot holes. Okay. I got to say the truth of it is I went through looking for plot holes and it's solid. It's actually, Oh like, really? Yeah. There's, there's plausible motivation for every single scene. Like at first I was like, so he shows up at reds and he says, red, we got to go save Saul. And then the very next scene, they just show up at the hideout. And I was like, wait a minute, how'd they know where the hideout was? And then I went back and earlier, Red is bragging to them. He's like, oh, they got this awesome hideout. It's really dope. And it's like really, it's underground. It's all uh, fucking huge. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so Red knows where the hideout is. So it makes total sense for him to go to Red and be like, we need to go save Saul. And then the funniest thing ever is after that huge like gear up scene, Danny McBride shows up and, he, you know, they, they arrive at the hideout and he's just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm infected. I feel sick. I feel like shit. I'm sorry, man. I got to go. And he's like, no, no, don't leave. I love that. He's like, no, don't leave. Well, fuck you. Fuck you. Please come back. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I love Danny McBride so much in this movie. <laughs> he's amazing. He's hilarious. Uh, but honestly, I didn't see snail off every single choice they made were solid choices like they were reasonable choices and most of the choices they made were emphasizing like let's just get Seth Rogen and James Franco together and Danny McBride and see what kind of shit they come up with and you right. can you know from that fight scene alone you're like okay they're just fucking around and having fun exactly um, 
but so as far as criticism, I would I would say I don't I don't see any plot holes. I mean, you could say, well, you know, Danny McBride gets shot in the stomach, then he gets shot in the heart, and then mm-hmm. he gets shot three more times, then he gets blown up, and he's still walking. Like I love that. It's so funny. It's such a great weird idea, and like uh, the fact that it's like he's just too funny. You want to put him in every scene? Why would you not? If you had Danny McBride, you want to put him in every movie or every single scene. That, he's so fucking funny. That's exactly why they kept him on. I do think that there's not so much plot holes, but I think the big issue that I have with this is that it's largely a lot of missed opportunities. It's largely about the way they executed the movie. Now, you know, I can't help but like compare like. Um, the Big Lebowski, the man who, the spy who knew too little, um, and then like, you know, or even Dazed and Confused and stuff like that. Those are mm-hmm. all movies that are like, and then or Midnight Run. That's another classic. Like they're on the run. It's a contained short period of time where everything's like really tense. Forty-eight hours, um, and it's it fits with those kind of classic like LA adventure tropes. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, do you know where was the set? Where was the set? Yeah, where was the the movie set? Can you tell me from memory? No, I I I was just assuming it was around L.A. See, that's what's interesting. I think it's a, supposed to be a fictional town because they keep referring to Clark County, and the only Clark County is in Las Vegas. That's where Las Vegas uh, is. Okay, okay. Uh, and they even went so far as to like do a bus stop that says Clark County Transit. And then they show the bus stop scene, and there's a guy holding a newspaper that says uh, Clark County Gazette. So they don't say the city. They just say the county for some reason. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, it very much feels like L.A. Well, and everything was shot in uh, Los Angeles, Glendale. Uh, There's this one site that has, like, all the locations listed. And, oh, okay. um, and yeah, they're, they're all, it's all L.A. Everything was shot in L.A., and the whole thing feels like L.A. <laughs> Like even, you know, the, when they're out in the wilderness and stuff, that's pretty much up at uh, that Disney ranch up in Santa Clarita. Um, oh, okay. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, but mostly the, the main issue that I had with it was it seemed like it, it's, tip, it's something that I saw emerge specifically with the Apatow movies that became kind of like a standard way of executing comedies um, like in the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years. It's very typical of the Apatow movies and all like the Apatow protégés. Um, but then it goes on to like, for example, uh, Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters. And the, the and I even see out a little bit with um, American Hustle. And it's this idea of like, like, let's just get funny people together, funny actors, like improv comedians and put them in a situation and let them just riff and let them just like, you know, just keep chewing up different ideas and throwing different ideas. I call this improvologue. It's dialogue that's improvised and it's it's mostly just them trying to make each other lose their shit. It's them trying to crack up the audience. And the, the, the problem is, is that what, what ends up happening is they start, you know, they spend hours kind of improvising, coming up with all this different stuff. But what you see is comedians and actors that are more interested in trying to do the funny thing than trying to find the truth of the characters. And right. that's why I think the theme comes off as kind of as really muddy. 
because, you know, it's like, isn't it funny that there are these, you know, Franco's a drug dealer, but all he cares about is, you know, being best buddies with Rogan, you know. Um, and because of that, I think they missed a lot of opportunities to match, to make the story something really great. It was so close to great. It, it's fun chemistry. Danny McBride is so funny. I mean, Seth Rogen and, and James Franco, they're fun to watch. They're fun to, to watch together. And, you know, James Franco is super charming. He reminds me of a really good friend of mine. That's like, I love hanging out with him. But if they had taken the time to kind of really develop the characters a little more, I think it could have elevated it to that next level, to that level where he's actually saying something really interesting. Like, you know, uh, The Big Lebowski has so many different layers. It works on just like the buddy comedy level. And then it's, mm-hmm. it's also, but every single line has so much insight and, and reveals so much and has so much layers to it. And uh, so because of that, I saw this as largely as like a, a great story, great talent, a huge budget for a stoner comedy that was largely missed opportunities. Like, for example, let's get specific. Um, so some of the things they chose to spend time on was like the forest freak scene. They're in the woods. They're, and then they start, you know, they're getting high and all of a sudden they start getting paranoid. Like, what if they can hear us through the, through the, see, the problem is every single one of their problems that they're solving, the way they're solving it actually works. Like, yeah, they they were being traced on the phone and they were being chased. And so everything they're doing is actually clear thinking. And what would have been funny is if they had ratcheted up that a little bit further. Instead, it was kind of like, yeah, a rational person would think this. Yeah, get rid of the phone. They're probably tracking it. It's the cops. It's logical thinking. Um, like a great comparison would be something like uh, like uh, Jack Black and Kyle Glass. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like Tenacious D, like um, some of their videos and stuff and some of the short films that they would do where it's like they, they just take it so far that like I want to see I want to see like how fucked up you can be and still try and, you know, get away from this kingpin. Like that's the premise of the movie. But I feel like they, mm-hmm. they, they kind of fell short when it came to like really pushing into like that paranoid state and how ridiculous and absurd it can be because they didn't seem that high. And they didn't seem mm-hmm. like they were able to solve all their problems. They were able to respond to the conflicts they were supposed to, except for that moment where they're in the woods and he's like, ah, oh, I hear something. And they run in different directions and then hit a tree and hit a rock. And it's like, eh, it's slapsticky, but it, it's like, <laughs> it's, isn't that funny? It's cute. But I, I think it could have been hilarious. Like they could have taken it to the next level just by exploring that. Um, and then a plot point: the car dies in the woods, and they hitchhike back through the woods, and then uh, they hike through the woods, and then eventually hitchhike on a boat. And they they spend a solid fifteen minutes on that sequence, and it's like I don't I don't care. We see a we see a video montage of them rolling around in the grass and all that shit. It's like okay. Um, selling weeds like where they sell weeds to kids mm-hmm. like they could have dialed that up you know it could have been like um, like what if they what if they were selling them to like Catholic school kids and they're all in uniforms and then like you know and then the nun comes along and she's like well you know just give me just give me a, give me like a dime bag or something you know and then like and then it turns out like the Catholic school kids end up hustling them and then they steal all the weed and then they're like fuck now we don't have any money what the fuck are we going to do now? Like, that would have been, like, taking it to the next level. Right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. 
it's like it's like they could have they took the premise basically it's like they got an outline they got funny comedians and they just kind of let them explore like on on the day and, and i'm sure that they developed it i'm sure they re, you know they read the script they had some ideas and then they were willing to just play with it mm-hmm. but I, I think it could have benefited from rewriting i mean they had some really great minds working on the script and it feels kind of a little bit like like they weren't really using their imagination. It was kind of like first thought, best thought, which mm-hmm. is fine. But it's for this kind of budget, it could have been brilliant. And instead it was just, you know, it's fun. Um, and another thing that I thought I was thinking like, you know, rather than have, you know, them just kind of frolicking through the woods, you know, they, they established this premise in there. That's the, have you ever seen the movie, the spy who knew it's too little? No spy who knew too little. It's um, Bill Murray, and his brother's like an actor, and he signs him up for a trip in England where he gets to pretend to be a spy. And it's like this, like, actors go along, and he's just, you know, it's this adventure. But he accidentally gets some information from a real spy, and he's being hunted by real people, but he thinks he's on this tour. And so he doesn't know that people are really getting shot and murder around him. And he's just like, yeah, this is fun. And it's great. But all these people think that he's like this really dangerous guy. And they're like, wow, he's, he's so amazing. How does he do this? And you see the same premise in Pineapple Express where they're kind of they're playing up like, who's this Dale Denton? Wow, he must, you know, he must be working for Chung. Yeah, they think he's a, like a high profile hitman. Exactly. Basically. Exactly. So I started thinking like, well. So what would I have done if I were going to if I had read the script exactly as it is and what would I do to ratchet it up? And like the first thing I would do is I would start off like I would introduce a really like a total badass Leon the professional type of hunter who meets with Ted and he's like we got a problem. Someone witnessed this and all we have is Pineapple Express. And this total fucking terrifying badass comes after Dale, comes after Saul like a Terminator type, right? And Dale and Saul running from him accidentally kill him. Or he ki- he kills himself by being overly ambitious. And everyone is terrified of Dale and Saul cuz like what the <laughs> fuck? Like these guys how do they take out the Terminator? He's the most dangerous fucking guy there is. And then from there uh then so then all of a sudden Chung's gang would be like well, fuck, who's this Dale Denton guy? You took out Ted's most dangerous guy. So then you've got, um, what is it, Matheson and Bodlovsky? Budlovsky. It's Craig Robinson and Kevin Kerrigan, the, the two guys that were near chasing him. So these guys mm-hmm. show up, and they're like, well, we're, we're not the best, but you know they want to prove themselves to Ted. So, th- so then they're sent after him. And meanwhile, like, so Chung goes and gets Dale Denton and Saul, and they're like, hey, you're... Like, you guys are really fucking dangerous. Like, you know, we we want you to help us. You know, almost kind of like a Miller's Crossing type thing. But it, it would be it would be escalating it, and it would be kind of building this whole thing. So then the whole, like, the, the gang war would feel less tacked on, and it would feel like Dale and Saul are the, the driving force behind the escalation. Mm-hmm. And that so that would motivate the whole scene. Like, that scene where Ted is screaming at Chung, and he's like, this is war! And he just starts pouting like a baby. And then he hangs up and literally Rosie Perez is like, why'd you do that? You made us look so fucking weak. Why would you do that? And it, like, it's a good question. Why would he do that? He lost his temper. Like it's not. Right. Whereas if, 
if they think Dale Denton is this high-profile, dangerous, mysterious figure and everybody's trying to figure out who he is and it's really just fucking Seth Rogen and James Franco fucking up, they just keep fucking up because they're so fucking high that that's what causes all the problems. That, then all of a sudden, the movie feels like it's talking about something interesting. It's escalating it and it's and it, and it, it makes the comedy even better because it's like, Everybody thinks they're these terrifying guys, and they're just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. Like the comedy, their useless comedy is so fucking funny. But I think that it would have benefited if they had kind of amped it up. And then mm-hmm. one one other thing is like that Craig Robinson and Kevin Corrigan thing. Like it was funny. They're great characters. I love Craig Robinson, but like they that was a great opportunity to kind of be a, an exaggerated reflection of what Saul and Dale are going through. You know, if you give one of them an exaggerated superiority complex and you give the other person kind of a clingy or just a desire to like, you know, big brother kind of feeling where he's like, I just want to, you know, I just want to hang out with my big brother. You exaggerate that and they become kind of a reflection of Dale and Saul. Then all of a sudden you get like, then it follows the theme a little bit stronger. But because you have a bunch of actors who are just trying to be funny in the moment you have all these conflicts that aren't really saying anything about the themes or the character or the unconscious drive and you get some gags which gags are fine but when you can elevate the gags to actually saying something interesting about about the world or about these characters then i think you're actually saying something you know then then it becomes something that's you know that that's worth rewatching and really diving for larger meaning which, you know, not every movie needs to be that. This is just, you know, it's a fun Hesher uh, 48 hours movie. Um, but I think that they had so many opportunities to elevate it. And I think because they're depending on this whole like uh, improvisational storytelling, they're largely like the, like the scene where uh, Craig Robinson walks into the dining room and he goes, um, oh, it's the, the food's still hot. And he's. Hovers his hands over and stinks him. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's funny if you're high. It's hilarious if you're high. It is really funny. Is it really funny though? I I think it's hilarious. Yeah. Why is he doing that? I don't know. I don't care. But it's weird and it's gross and it's like he's like he's literally holding a gun. He has to put the gun down. Sticks his hand (laughs) in the macaroni and cheese. And it's uh, okay. Okay. I mean, it's like it's it's him being funny. uh-huh. It, like, I think it's Craig Robinson being like, they told me to be funny. All right, I'm just going to go for it. It's like it's yeah. an unusual choice. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think your criticism of Pineapple Express is right on and totally, uh, I totally understand it and where you're coming from. It's just for me personally, when I go and watch Pineapple Express, I'm just along for the ride. And yeah. I, I know I'm not about to watch the Coen brothers masterfully direct. Yeah. You know? Okay. Fair point. Fair the, point. It's the, a- even though they have a lot of similarities and things in common, I, I think ultimately they're, they're very different movies. Yeah. Yeah. True. It's true. Having said that, I do agree with you. And I, I think pineapple express falls a little bit flat in some situations. I, I think they definitely could have ramped things up. And the way you broke that down was really good. Okay, cool. Again, let me say, I love Pineapple Express. It's so fun. It's playful. It's Seth Rogen and 
James Franco and Danny McBride and Craig Robinson at their best. So like so many good stuff. But like that scene, sorry, I'm going to harp again. Like the scene where like, um, ah, what's his name? Is it Gary Cole? The guy that plays Ted Jones. Uh, yeah, Gary Cole. Yeah, okay. So Gary Cole and uh, Rosie Perez are in the back and he's like, we're going to take them all. We're going to murder all of them. So you can smile. And she's like, oh, you. And then he's like, she punches him. He goes, say something in Spanish. And it's like, they clearly broke character. They're just rolling. And right. it's kind of like, ah, we're having fun now. Hey, guys, we're having fun. <laughs> I think part of my yeah. resentment's overstating it. But part of my, I think part of my frustration with it is that it's indicative of this pattern that I'm seeing in a lot of filmmaking. There's, there are a lot of uh, directors who are not actual cinematic directors. They're not in control of the story. They're largely directors who wrangle talent. And their job is to be diplomatic and encouraging to huge egos, which is great. It's a skill unto itself. And really great directors can handle that as well as manage the story. But in most, a lot of storytelling now, you're seeing this kind of division in labor where the director of cinematography is the one who's concerned with the cinematic storytelling. And the director is actually somebody who is their only job is to make the celebrity feel reassured in the character choices they're making. And because of that, you, you know, you're, you're seeing like filmmakers that don't even know what a lens does or what kind of lenses on the camera. And again, you know, uh, all of us have a lot to learn. All of us have a lot of growth and we all have lots of opportunities to completely to, to grow in the craft. But, uh, uh, but we're seeing that, that, you know, it's part of the reason why we're seeing kind of really bland storytelling. Now it's this, it's not cinematic storytelling. Like you look at someone like Edgar Wright or Tarantino. These guys are brilliant director directors or formalist directors. They're in control of the story they understand the character and the psychology of the character, and they know how to use the form of cinematic storytelling to really uh, make us feel, to immerse us in the world of that story. And it's it, it's interesting, and it, it's very difficult to do that. But it's part of the reason why it, you know, I have a lot of respect for the great filmmakers because they understand that it's the directing isn't just. It's not just, you know, um, letting the celebrities play and then you feel good and everybody goes home. It's about telling a story that, that has real craft, real uh, dimension, and all of you are kind of collaborating together to bring about that story. That's, those are the directors that I really respect. Um, anyway, I'll get off my fucking high horse now. <laughs> what the fuck do I know? I don't know. It's still a good movie. It made a lot of money. $25 yeah. million dollars turned into $100 million. It made, some, it made a lot of rich people much richer and a lot of famous people much more famous. So uh, we can all celebrate that. There's, there's, to credit your point, there's definitely way better movies out there. <laughs> but this is a hilarious movie that I think does what, what it set out to do. Yeah, so no question. Basically just make people laugh. No question. Something I found interesting is Pineapple Express was not a strain of weed before this movie. And oh. that Seth, Seth Rogen, when he, when he wrote it with, uh, uh, what's his name? Sorry, Evan Goldberg. Yeah. They, or Seth Rogen said that 
if after this movie, pine if Pineapple Express becomes like a real weed that people buy, then it will have been a success. <laughs> and to that point, it was a huge success because Pineapple Express is now like one of the most popular strains of marijuana. Really? It is, yeah. So it's named after the movie, not the other way around. Yeah. So this was basically a $25 million campaign to advertise a strain of weed. Exactly. It's a commercial. It's a commercial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two-hour-long commercial. Uh, something else I found interesting. Wait, was, real quick. Is it what? What kind of weed is it? Uh, I th- I think it's a indica, but like an indica hybrid. Mm. Yeah, it should have been like a sativa. That's like like a. I, I could be wrong. Like high THC, oh. so it like makes them paranoid. <laughs> but indicas could have really high THC as well. Yeah, that's true. Now you got me curious. Uh. Okay, yeah, it it is uh, actually a sativa that, or a hybrid that's sativa leaning. Okay, gotcha. Uh, something else I found really interesting actually is that the roles of Dale and Saul were reversed originally. So James really? Franco was going to play Dale, and I guess it was James Franco that had the idea to switch the roles, and Seth Rogen didn't care that much, so he said okay, and and that's what happened. Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, and I and I love it the choice. Out. Yeah, it's so I love James Franco as Saul. I love him as Saul. It makes complete I'm sense to how it ended flip. up working out. I, I kind of want to see that though. I want to see them shoot a scene the other right? way around. But but I, mean, I, think I guess I could, right I could see the I could see the type like you know, I mean James Franco with a high school girlfriend. It would look really <laughs> bad now. It would look really bad now. I mean. It, it's still, I mean, but that's the point of the movie is he learns like, oh, fuck, I need to grow the fuck up. I need to stop dating girls that are far too young for me. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the last thing I found interesting is looking back at the movie, I'm, I'm pretty sure the facility from the beginning of the movie in 30, 1937 is the same facility that they're growing weed in at the end of the movie. You even see that diving suit at the end of the movie yeah. down in that bunker. I'm, I totally assumed that. Was that a surprise for you? or? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise for me. It's, okay. it's something I didn't pick up on until this time. Why do you think it. they did that? Uh, budget. <laughs> so uh, I do think, so to me, the, the big giveaway is when um, – when the general walks out in that platform and there's no railings around it. And then later when James Franco climbs down there and he walks along the platform and there's no railings and there's just all that cush down below. Then I was like, immediately, like the first time I saw the movie, I was like, Oh, okay. We're, we're bringing it back to the original, to the beginning of the movie. Mm. And so what I thought was interesting is, you know, like why make Rosie Perez a, a police officer, like a uniform police officer. And I do think that was speaking to something that was um, largely talking about how, you know, they, they even mentioned that one of the guys was an ex-CIA agent. And mm-hmm. what they're saying is that, you know, the, the drugs were used by the authority to um, to infiltrate certain, you know, there's, it used to be conspiracy theory. Now it's confirmed the CIA used to um, 
uh, feed drugs into uh, communities of like minority communities and communities of lower economic status so they could use that as a way to kind of um, destroy the community from the from in, inside and uh, feed the the justice system feed the prisons all right that wraps up our vivid section for uh, pineapple express you want a vivisection next week's movie we're going to be doing Um, so be sure to check us out at storykinetics.com. You can uh, leave a question for the ask hole there. Um, you can also subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe to the to storykinetics.com. Also subscribe to us and click the bell uh, on YouTube. And uh, be sure to join us uh, for the discussion on Facebook at uh, the Art of Story Facebook group. Um, thanks a lot. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Tchau, tchau,